Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and from around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. During the daytime, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's about New York City's neighborhoods and their extraordinary history. On most programs, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its current energy, texture, and vibe. What makes that New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, artists, and other interesting neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting part or theme of the city that's not focused on a particular neighborhood. Some past shows have included a history of U.S. presidents who came or lived in New York, the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, which until 1898 was actually its own city, the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York, and we've also explored the history of bicycles and cycling in the city. Uh, It was the 200th anniversary of the bicycle being introduced in the city. In the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway, the age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre, or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. And each show is available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Today we're going to journey to a special neighborhood, uh, one where many of its buildings are actually original and date from the 1800s, Tribeca, although the name of that neighborhood wasn't there in the 1800s. Our first guest is a regular on Rediscovering New York. It's Joyce Gold. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history, and for over 40 years she's been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave rave reviews through private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. And her website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce has published. She's written two guidebooks, From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, and From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. Her article, Learning on Foot, Walking Tours of New York City, appeared in the Parents League 2000 Review, and Joyce has also been acclaimed as the doyen of New York City tour guides. And we welcome Joyce back to Rediscovering New York. Welcome, Joyce. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Now, uh, we have a lot of regular listeners who know about your background, but uh, I know that our listenership has been growing. And for the sake of them, uh, I want to have them find out how you got into this business. Uh, How did you get into the business of of illuminating and entertaining New Yorkers and visitors about about the neighborhoods? Well, I was a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in the mid-70s, and um, it really wasn't me. It's a wonderful organization, but it wasn't really inspiring me very much. And I once picked up a book, a 100-year-old book about New York prior to that, It talked about streets that I passed every day coming from the subway to the New York Fed. And suddenly my daily life was made much more interesting. I thought about the layers of time and I could look at Broadway and imagine the Indians there, the Dutch there, the British there, etc. And I was just hooked. So I've been reading and collecting information and presenting it to the public, New Yorkers as well as everybody else ever since. And you're not a native New Yorker, but an adoptive New Yorker. You fell in love with this city, and here you stayed. That's right. Uh, Now let's move to Tribeca. Uh, First, let's go to the name. It's not a Mm -hmm. conventional name for a neighborhood, but in true New York fashion, uh, there's a logic to how we came up with the name. How did we come up with Tribeca? (laughs) What does it mean? Well, it stands for Triangle Below Canal Street, and it's not even a triangle. And it is below Canal Street, though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's more like a trapezoid. Exactly. We were speaking in the green room before the broadcast. Maybe it should be called Trebeca, <laughs> trapezoid <laughs> below Canal Street. Um, like much of the island, there was farmland before any kind of like urban or village development in the area, correct? Yes, it definitely was. And in the 1630s, some of it was given to um, a Roloff Jansen, who had been the manager of an upstate estate. So he had connections. It was outside the city of New Amsterdam, just above it. Uh, That was the Dutch town. This was when we were a Dutch colony. And uh, that is the origin of European settlement of the island. 
eventually, by, by 1705, it became the, king, the Queen's Farm, I believe it was called. And um, uh, Trinity uh, Church, which was an Anglican church, um, was given an endowment of land by Queen Anne of England in 1705. At this point, we were a British colony in case they ever wanted to start a college. 1754, they begin King's College, now called Columbia, and the 215 acres of land uh, Queen Anne gave them is still in part owned by Trinity Church, now uh, an Episcopal church. Uh, they own primarily the area just above Tribeca, but they laid out most of the streets of Tribeca. They were one of two entities that really owned the whole neighborhood before the American Revolution. I want to go back a little bit further. Um, did the how was the how was the area used by by the Lenape peoples even before the Dutch came? Well, there were thirteen sites that we know of that. Uh, the Native Americans had some connection with. In some cases, just a trading post, but there was a site of Indian residency, at least some of the year, along a very large lake. When the Dutch arrived in Manhattan, they found uh, one dozen streams and two dozen lakes, and the largest of the lake uh, came to be called the Collect Pond, and one of the Indian settlements was along the site of that. It's Today, it would be just a slightly east of Tribeca. Hmm. Uh, the grid of the city, as we know it, above Houston Street was laid out in 1811, but a lot of the streets below Canal Street certainly were laid out before then. Um, when was uh, St. John's Chapel built by the, by the parish of Trinity Church? It was built in 1817, and uh, the chapel was on the site until 1918, at which point... Uh, Varick Street was widened, and it took over that chapel. But there are still some street names. There is a St. John's Lane behind where the chapel had been, and uh, there's a Vestry Street. I used to live on Vestry Street. That was named for the vestry of that chapel. Hmm. Of the, and, of course, across from where St. John's Chapel was was St. John's Park, which now uh, is sort of a roundabout for, for, for traffic exiting the Holland Tunnel. So you do that, you, right. you, that there's that big unused piece of land in the middle. Uh, our listeners can't see it, but I'm holding up a picture of St. John's Chapel. You know, one of the th interesting things about this is that there were, there were three uh, chapels built by Trinity Parish downtown. Uh, of course, Trinity Church, which had been destroyed several times, uh, St. Paul's Chapel, which was from 1866. But I'm looking at St. John's Chapel, and uh, you know, I used to live in London, and I'm a big fan of Georgian architecture. This almost looks like a Wren, a Christopher Wren church. I mean, it's, it looks the steeple is bigger than St. Paul's Chapel. Mm -hmm. It was built maybe 50 years after that, and it was just gorgeous. Um, mm -hmm. And it was lost to the wrecking ball when. Uh, uh, well, you know, New York had been a British colony for over a century, so a lot of the buildings that went up that time or near that time uh, were modeled after things British. This was actually uh, designed by a man named Macomb, who also co-designed our present city hall in 1811. And uh, it's really known as much for the steeple as for anything else. As a matter of fact, in the uh, Canal Street stop of the number one subway train, there is an image in the tile on the wall of that, a, a chapel, but really it's just of the steeple because it was so pronounced. It's, it was more than 200 feet tall. It's, it, it's just gorgeous. It, it looks like so many churches in London that mm, I, yes. I used to go into when I lived there. Not that I'm Christian, but I just love red churches. Well, Episcopalian chapels like St. Paul's Chapel were modeled after St. Martin's in the Field at Trafalgar Square. Mm. When would what we now know is centers of population or some kind of town or village, when did that first materialize in what would become Tribeca? Well, in the 1820s, it was quite a popula populated residential neighborhood, and there are still homes left in Tribeca from the 1820s, uh, buildings in the federal style of architecture. Oh. When did the Washington market open? When was it first started? Uh, sometimes before the Civil War. It was right at the Hudson River. A lot of the farm farmers came from New Jersey right across the river. 
and there was just so many, so much variety. There were dozens of kinds of apples, dozens of kinds of all different kinds of fruit, and it was a wholesale market. The neighborhood, uh, what is now called Tribeca, has been called a number of different things, and one of them was the Washington Market. There is a school, a wonderful PS 234 public grade school in Tribeca today, and again, they evoke the past because on the second level of the school, there are tiles that depict a number of scenes from the Washington Farmer's Market. Wow. Uh, the shipping industry first started in, in New York City on the East River, um, but it moved to the Hudson at some mm -hmm. point. Um, when did it move and why did it begin to move further uptown and on the Hudson? Well, a very uh, important date in New York is 1807 because that is when Robert Fulton, who didn't invent the steamboat but made it commercially viable, showed that against the winds, against the tides, he didn't have to wait for any of those things, he could get his steamboat to Albany and back to Manhattan in an incredible 32 hours. Now, in the age of sail, which preceded the age of steam, the East River was where uh, the merchants were and the sailors were because um, sometimes New York waters were iced over and uh, the, 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 um, the water comes in, the tides come in at different times, both in the north part of the East River compared to the south part of the East River. And so that breaking up action allowed not much ice to be in that. But in the age of steam, uh, which gets pretty strong by the 1820s and certainly the 1830s, the Hudson River was what, what took the place. And of course, the piers coming along uh, in the decades right before the Civil War really led to the healthy industrialization of what would become Tribeca. Mm -hmm. um, some of the city's earliest factories are located in Tri were located in Tribeca, weren't they? They were. And uh, for example, Staple Street in Tribeca, there is a theory that maybe staples uh, were secretly dropped in that area in order to avoid custom duties. But in terms of manufacturing, um, I think of Tribeca more as middlemen in the food industry. Uh, I'm not really too sure what manufacturing specifically was going on there, aside from food. Hmm. Um, well, some of the, building, the, the buildings are absolutely beautiful, and one mm -hmm. of the things that I like about Tribeca compared to Soho is uh, that uh, the streets are wider and the sidewalks are wider, so it, 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 there's more light that comes in, and it gives you a very different perspective to look at those buildings. Very much. Um, and some of them are wider, too, than they were in... Uh, and a lot of them of, remain, yeah. because if you have a very big building that's used for, say, storing dairy products, it will convert very nicely into some new kind of retail or for residential. If you have a place with a lot of small buildings, they're more likely to be demolished for new structures. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit again about the, the area as a residential neighborhood in the 19th century. Um, there was a residential area in Tribeca. Um, this happened with a lot of neighborhoods as the city expanded northward in different times th uh, through the 19th century. There were areas that had been better to do and nice places to live that changed not for the better as years went by. That happened in the Collect Pond in the early 19th century uh, and also happened in the East Village around the Bowery north of, north of Houston Street after the Civil War and also near Madison Square. Did the same uh, thing happen in Tribeca? Well, what happened in Tribeca is because it was right at the waterfront, a lot of uh, kind of dangerous activity and people started getting mugged uh, even by the 1860s in that part of the city. So that was one of the things that brought the neighborhood down. Mm. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold and the history of Tribeca. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings and conversations got you down? Hi, 
I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Me Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're, We're your digital, digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! What's that? <laughs> Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. That's me. I'm Jeff Goodman. And today we are talking about Tribeca. Uh, our first guest is Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce, tell us a little bit about your, your business and your public tours. Well, I do two kinds of historical tours and have been doing them for over 40 years. One of them uh, is private tours, and I work for concierges and I work for travel companies. I give tours for gifts. People give tours for my for gifts for people. And the errant real estate broker. <laughs> and the amaz- amazing uh, real estate brokers, the very smart ones. And uh, I also have one or two tours a week that people can just show up at and don't have to make reservations and don't have to have a group. And I'm always designing new routes because every neighborhood has a different history in this city. And I find it a lot of fun to really delve into how each neighborhood came about. And people can find out about your business. Your web address is? It's uh, JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Some of my newest are the Gilded Age on Fifth Avenue at the time right after the American Civil War. I'm just designing now a tour of the newest thing in town, the Hudson Yards. Uh, But I have many wonderful tours, and I always like to keep them very updated as well. Your tours are great. Joyce and I partner on a number of them in my real estate business. I'm the errant broker I mentioned a minute ago. (laughs) Um, And you have a great Instagram account. You have fabulous pictures, and the Instagram handle is... It is Joyce Gold History Tours. Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, moving back to Tribeca uh, and going into the into the 20th century, which now is more than the beginning of which was more than a century ago. Uh, that park uh, in the middle of Tribeca, St. John's Park, uh, that was converted into a railway and freight depot at some point, wasn't it? Yes. It was sort of a prototype for the present Gramercy Park, a private uh, private place. And in the 1820s, some of the most illustrious people in town lived around that private park. For example, the bishop, of, the Episcopal Bishop of New York lived there. John Erickson, who designs a revolutionary kind of naval vessel for the Civil War, lived there. And they had private access to the park. But uh, after the Civil War, uh, Commodore uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt wanted to take over the park for his private freight station. He sort of brought a lot of freight traffic into what is now called Tribeca. And he offered the homeowners, I think $10,000 each, and more to Trinity Church, and he purchases that area. So one of the first things he did was have a statue made showing himself, and that sort of towered over the freight yard. Imagine that. And Is that the one that, that's in front of Grand Central exactly. right now? Exactly. In oh. the 1920s, it was moved to Grand Central, which anybody can see it now. And it was, uh, it was very heavily trafficked. Now, in the 1920s, a lot of, well, 1927, the Holland Tunnel opened, the first tunnel in the world to carry cars. Uh, state-of-the-art ventilation was required. And now, it, 
it's used by really another kind of transportation. It's one of the exits of the Holland Tunnel. Now, since I used to live nearby, I know that it's lined with flowers for the car drivers to enjoy, but those flowers aren't really planted. They're in pots, and once a year, the Port Authority workers take the pots out and replace them, and that's just for viewing by automobile drivers. And the plants actually live amidst all that exhaust. They that's, just live, yeah. They're that's very like a ventilation system as well. <laughs> uh, miracle of modern engineering. So motorized street traffic really did impact the neighborhood and also with the tunnel. Um, the name the West Side Highway has its origins in Tribeca, doesn't it? But it was first called something else. It was called Miller Highway. That's right. Miller was a, a borough president who was involved in creating that elevated road that was in use uh, over, over West Street until the 1970s. Hmm. Um, what led to the highway being dismantled? I remember as a, as a young, I'm 58, as a, as a boy, my uh, we have family would drive to uh, the Lincoln Tunnel uh, to visit my grandmother in New Jersey. And I remember that the West Side Highway had cobblestones on it, which was, you know, it was, it was a big deal, you know, to, to, to rumble down the highway with, with uh, cobblestones. Yeah. But what led, what led it to being dismantled? Well, despite what they said when they were running for office, both our mayor and governor very much wanted the federal government to build a massively expensive highway that would be partly in the, the space of the Hudson River. It would be called Westway. And although they promised they weren't going to put the city's money into that, they sort of let the uh, Miller Highway, the, uh, the, hi the elevated highway, go to ruin. And it finally stopped being used when a very heavily loaded truck went through it around 13th Street. And then they clearly had to tear down the elevated uh, highway, hoping that that would bring on Westway. But there was a lot of public opposition against Westway, so that was never built. So that's why now West Street, surface level West Street, is flooded with cars because neither of these highways helped alleviate it. Mm. When did most of Tribeca's industrial businesses and warehouses, when did they uh, pretty much vanish? Well, I would say in the 60s or so, they started going to New Jersey. New Jersey had more space for less money, and some of the successful companies were uh, needing to leave. Uh, Tribeca, for many, many years, for more than a century, was sort of a middle operator in the food chain. Huge blocks of butter would be shipped there, say, from Wisconsin. And in Tribeca, they would, it would be cut up into little patties and then sold to restaurants. Bazzini was there for over a century. And you could just, in, when I lived in Tribeca, you could just inhale the roasting nuts that would then be sold to uh, sports stadiums or uh, to cosmetic companies or all kinds of other people. Uh, Harry Wills was the last dairy company to stay, and then they they owned their own buildings, but they wanted to expand. Uh, residential prices were taking over a lot of the factory buildings, just as has happened in other parts of the city today, and they eventually leave. Well, by coincidence, you also lived in Tribeca, and of course that's not why you're on the show. You're a regular <laughs> on, on Rediscovering New York. When did you move to Tribeca? Uh, I moved there in 1975 at a time when I thought it should have been called Tribeca, where's that? Because nobody ever heard of Tribeca. And if you said that's where you lived, they would always ask, where was that? On my corner, there were homeless people keeping warm with a fire in an oil can in the winter. But the harbinger of change in New York and other places is artists. And three internationally famous artists lived in my building. The, the famous pop artist John Chamberlain was there. The great sculptor Marisol was there. And the opera composer Robert Wilson all lived in my building. It had a wonderful view. It was right on the Hudson River. And although when I lived there, the uh, elevated highway was still up, it was closed to cars. And there were just joggers. Some of them pushing baby carriages were right outside my window. There were three lofts on a floor, and one of them was owned by the University, I believe, of North Carolina, so that if visiting art students came to New York 
to see the art scene, they would have a place to stay. Hmm. Well, speaking of artists and lofts, uh, Soho, you know, was was a big neighborhood where artists lived and worked in lofts before Tribeca. Then there seemed to be like a migration from from artists who went to Soho to Tribeca. Why did they move? Why did they move to the next neighborhood? Well, I'm not sure why they moved to the next neighborhood. Usually it's a function of price. But the way that artists moved into to Soho, and I actually wrote the Soho and the Tribeca section in the Encyclopedia of New York about uh, the history of both of them, was that the Barracuda city planner, Robert Moses, wanted to run a highway through Broom Street in, in uh, Soho. And so a lot of the businesses moved out because businesses like to know what's happening in the future for them. And artists, often hungry for large, rentable, uh, affordable space, started moving in. When? Did, how long did you live in Tribeca for, Joyce? I was there for three and a half years. I had moved from East 51st Street, Midtown, and then I moved to Chelsea from there and yeah. have been in Chelsea ever since. And you live, till, uh, live today. Well, around the time that you left, there were, there were buildings that were being torn down in Tribeca. Let's, let's call it urban renewal, even though they weren't building housing projects. Uh, Independence Plaza went up in 1975, which is a very large complex. That's right. And the Borough of Manhattan Community College was 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 built in 1980, uh, and then we also have Washington Market Park. Well, uh, in 1967, uh, the city moved the remaining food middle people out of that neighborhood, partly because they could see great other potential for the real estate, and they moved it to Hunts Point, a section of the Bronx. Uh, so that, uh, well, you call it urban renewal, as do most people. My grandmother called it Irving removal, and that's exactly <laughs> what it was. Uh, so I moved in just as Independence Plaza. Many people thought it looked like it belonged on the Upper East Side and somehow got lost in Tribeca. But that was subsidized housing because for 150 years, middle-class people did not live in, in Tribeca. And so to entice them to doing that, uh, middle-class people but they were given very heavily subsidized rents in Independence Plaza. Borough of Manhattan Community College moved into what had been flattened uh, by the urban renewal. Hard for me to say it that way, yeah. urban renewal. And uh, so that's what happened. A few buildings, I don't know, about a dozen buildings that had been scattered uh, on the area that was being flattened were put on a truck and moved to Harrison Street in uh, Tribeca just oh. to save. Uh, they go from 1797 to the 1820s. And they're still there today. They're still yes, there, yeah, yes. they're charming. Uh, I've Georgia. been on your Tribeca tour. I've seen them, uh, and yes. I've heard your uh, your your guidance. Yeah, they're both in the Georgian and the federal style. Hmm. Well, of course, we really can't talk about the history of Tribeca without discussing 9-11. Um, even though Tribeca, the neighborhood, doesn't start till a few blocks north of Vesey Street, uh, which is the northernmost street of the World Trade Center complex, uh, the neighborhood was, was very severely impacted by 9-11. Um, what ways was it impacted in the immediate Well, for a while, there was bad air that came from the, uh, the towers that fell, or were brought down, I should say. And uh, people, you know, in New York in general, just lost all interest in buying anything. Uh, Soho was totally empty of shoppers, big retail area of Soho. The only shop that people would go into in those for weeks and weeks and weeks were, was a gallery that showed different people's pictures of Ground Zero. And the same thing with Tribeca. People just didn't want to frequent all of the stores that were there. And that's why Robert De Niro decided the next year uh, on uh, 2002 to start having his Tribeca Film Festival, now certainly very influential throughout the world. It was to be able to bring people back to shop and support the merchants again in that neighborhood. Mm. You know, what other ways would you say that Tribeca has become revived since, since after 9-11? I think people are kind of quirky and have interesting uh, interesting venues that people want to see. There are a lot of galleries there. Uh, you're going to be hearing from a restaurateur who is part of the draw, I would say, back to the neighborhood, a, a wonderful restaurant that you'll be hearing about. And uh, certainly the uh, schools that are there, one block 
has one of the best public grade schools in the city, and a lot of people want to move to Tribeca to be with, uh, to have a safe place for their kids. Many of those people have been commuting maybe half an hour, an hour to work, and by living within walking distance, either of the courthouses or the finance financial district, uh, meant that they could have a better home life. So it became very child-friendly for a while, and still is. And Tribeca is one of Manhattan's most desirable neighborhoods. It is really, really beautiful as well. I love Tribeca, Mm -hmm. although I don't live there myself. I live uptown. Um, And, of course, there are really great art galleries and boutiques and restaurants, many of which have opened in the last five years or so, and which we actually saw on the tour. Uh Well, Joyce, thank you so much. It's always wonderful having you on Rediscovering New York. Our first guest has been Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Uh, Joyce gives amazing tours of Manhattan. In fact, I frequently refer to her as the amazing Joyce Gold. The amazing Joyce Gold. You can uh, access them on JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com and also access Joyce's Instagram account at Joyce Gold History Tours. Thank you, Jeff, or as I like to refer to you as Prince Halstead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to hear from our second guest who actually has a business in Tribeca. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And we're also supported by the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York's neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But never fear, there is a really good one on the radio. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com. You can like our show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. I know it's a novel Facebook handle, but there it is. And you can also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. And one other note before we get to our second guest, when I'm not hosting the show, I am a real estate agent in New York City where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761 or jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Well, we're pleased to be joined by our next guest, David Steingard, who is a Tribeca native. David began his career as an entrepreneur and CEO, first of a marketing firm and then of a technology company for public schools. But he made a career change. He left the world of business to attend law school and became a criminal prosecutor in Brooklyn. Uh, Then David surprised his colleagues again when he left his legal practice to return to the private sector and open a coffee shop with actor Hugh Jackman. The new social enterprise, Laughing Man Coffee and Tea, combined David's interest in justice with the philosophy of life and work, succinctly expressed in the company's tagline, and I love this, all be happy. 
As CEO of Laughing Man Coffee and Tea, David began by working closely with a struggling Ethiopian coffee farmer named Dukale. That relationship challenged his imagination and problem-solving abilities. He began to evaluate the real meaning of success and question what consumers really want when they make purchases, and David found that it was possible to produce coffee of superior quality while honoring everyone involved in the transaction. Witnessing the success of David's vision, Green Mountain, you've all heard Green Mountain, the largest distributor and buyer of organic and fair trade coffee in the world, bought Laughing Man and has continued to invest in his vision. To this day, David remains involved in the brand. But his work is not limited to the coffee business. As an instructor of 20 years at the School of Practical Philosophy, David began to apply his love of teaching to supporting others seeking change in themselves and the world. Very, very inspiring. And we welcome David Steingard to Rediscovering New York. Welcome, David. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. You are not only originally from New York, but you're a native of Tribeca. I am. Huh? I am. It's great to hear Joyce talk about the neighborhood I love. <laughs> what had you first designed? You've had an interesting career. You've been doing, you did one thing left for something else, which we'll talk about. What, event, what had you initially decided to go into the world of business? Pretty early on, my parents were entrepreneurs. They had restaurants and messenger companies, and we just sort of grew up in an entrepreneurial household. So there was always this sense of go and do it on your own. Uh, my father gave me some great advice early on, which said, before you do that, you should have worked a thousand jobs. You know, before you go on your own, learn to work with people, what it's like to earn a dollar, be fired, you know, this whole thing. A thousand jobs, that's <laughs> yeah. a ton of jobs. It's a lot. Um, I, did, I, did, I did enough, but uh, uh, early on, I knew I wanted to be on my own. What had you decide then to, and you, you went into business and you uh, had an event business as well as tech companies, correct? Mar- Out of college, I had a, a small marketing company. Um, just a friend of mine started it. We didn't really know what we were doing, but you know, we got into it. We had a few clients. She ended up moving to Brazil. Uh, at that point, I met somebody who was working with laptops for schools, and this was when sort of tech was emerging in public schools. So again, just the sort of nature of going with the flow and finding the next opportunity, I became a Toshiba certified technician and we started this sort of repair business supporting the sales end of implementing these programs. Um, Some uh, uh, stuff happened with him, we split up and then I sort of was putting off law school for a while. I was being lazy and then decided now was the time to do it. So what had you decide to leave the world of business and pursue a career in the, in, in the law? I think it was just a moment of transition. And so I thought about, listen, I had the opportunity to go. Um, part of me was, let me take that opportunity. Part of it was also personal growth. I, I knew I sort of was resisting it. So there was also this idea, let me overcome this fear of doing it. And then just it opens up opportunities. I, I knew I didn't want to get into mergers and acquisitions. And if I actually practice law, I wanted to be on trial, probably working for some public interest function. Um, so I, I did that. Did you go to work for the Brooklyn DA, DA's office right after law school? No, right after law school, I had a writing fellowship at a center at the law school called Center for New York City Law. We covered land use issues in New York, um, BSA board and variances and landmarks and uh, the Euler process and all that. Not very fun stuff if you're not in the trade. And then also New York administrative law, which was just sort of the nitty gritty workings of New York. When did you work in the Brooklyn DA's office? So that was about uh, uh, 2000. Was Charles Hines still the yeah, DA then? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then what, ha- what was it that had you leave the law and go back into business again? Talk about doing 180s back and forth. Yeah, it was really just practical. I mean, I loved being at the DA's office. I loved my job. I loved the people I work with. It had its struggles working for the city. Um, I became very aware that there was a, a cap to your initiative and creativity became a job where the more you're off the radar, the better. And that just sort of saps my soul and creativity. So it was just time to make a move. And um, at that point, there was this opportunity with Laughing Man um, where Hugh had come back from Ethiopia and we had been family friends for a little while. And my family had been in the coffee business and we were thinking about getting back to it. And these things sort of collided and he said, do you want to partner up? Because he had just been inspired working with some farmers in Ethiopia. He said, sure, but let's do like a Paul Newman type of model. Um, and so we just went for that. And, and in Tribeca, we had access to a little cafe, and, uh, which we owned. We owned the space. And for years, we've been looking for something to do. And this was the moment. Mm. I want to get to that in a second. Yeah. But I, one question I, I was curious about, um, 
How surprised were your colleagues at the DA's office that you had come to the law firm business and then had spent some years with them doing the people's business, you know, upholding justice, uh, and then <laughs> said, okay, well, you know, I'm going back from where I came, everyone. Nice nice to have been here. It's been meaningful. But, uh, you know, did, did you surprise a lot of your colleagues? I think in one way, yes, but I think they also didn't find it that surprising having known me. Um, there was a sense of sort of marching to my own drum in the office, um, and uh, so, yes, I think they were surprised, but I think they, it wasn't it wasn't out of left field. I think they got it <laughs> because it was me. You mentioned that you were inspired to to start Laughing Man with with Hugh Jackman uh, after he went to he traveled to Ethiopia. Did you do any of these trips with him? So he went um, around ninety uh, eight. I think around ninety eight, and we I found about three years later, um, and uh, met Ducali worked with the family, followed up on some sort of trees that Hugh had planted. We went, uh, we created a larger film out of it. And that's where I sort of had, again, my little bit of aha moment. Uh, we had, the company had already been up for a while by that point, for about, uh, it was about three years. So um, it was nice to take that next level and reconnect with what we're doing. You know? When did you start Laughing Man? How We started Laughing Man in uh, 2010. 2010, mm-hmm. and then about a year of planning, and then we opened the shop about a year later. So That's a big gap. Well, not a gap, but a big time from 98 to 2000. Yeah, I know. I just realized, I think I got my, 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 my timing wrong. And then I realized I left the DA's office, what do we say, in um, uh, uh, 2000. No, what I say? Uh, that's a good question. 2008? 2006, I think, around. Okay. Now I'm getting my timing right. Took about a year, 2008, we launched it. Yeah. And did you first launch the company uh, importing coffee, or did the retail uh, establishment come around the same time? No, it was retail right off the bat. And we had been importing and cupping coffees we like and wor- working with specialty importers, but the retail was the first component. And, of course, we're talking about Laughing Man Coffee on Duane Street, everyone. In case I haven't mentioned that before. Sorry if I haven't done Yeah, and what today. I consider the most beautiful block in Tribeca. <laughs> Uh, and you also have some history on that block, don't you? I do. I was basically born and raised there. I moved there when I was very young. Been there for about 40 years. Um, Love the neighborhood. In fact, uh, uh, Dwayne Park, from my understanding, about 1795, was the first park private land purchased for public use as a park for $5 from Trinity Church. It's this beautiful triangle park. Right. It's down on Hudson Street and Dwayne Street, right? Dwayne between Hudson and Greenwich, yeah. Yes, right. In fact, when I've uh, hosted my Tribeca tour with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours, we met we met in Duane Park. It's Beautiful. like a little triangle. It's, really, it's actually really really pretty with uh, buildings on yeah. uh, you know, old buildings on on all sides. How did you meet Ducale? Um, so Hugh had worked as global ambassador for an NGO called World Vision, and been supporting some coffee projects. So we met him through through Hugh when he first went down there, and that's when he became the muse for our company, if you will. And then just following up with the project three years later. You were very impacted by him, you said in your bio. How? how? What is it about the way he lived or about the way he, he worked that, that inspired you? I think that inspires it, you? Yeah, I, I think it's not really just him. When I went there, you know, there's this saying, and I don't like this saying, but the saying is, you know, they're poor, but they're happy, this kind of thing. And I, that always rubs me the wrong way because I don't, can't, I don't know anybody's mindset. I think it's a little presumptuous. But when you go down there, and you do see people who are, are struggling, have nothing, and are the most generous, happy people <laughs> you've ever met who give you the, their full attention, give you everything. Um, you just realize what's, what's of value. And what I love, the fact that it's surrounded by coffee. And I think that's what a coffee shop is about. I think that's what coffee is about, bringing community together. And one of the reasons why it's so special to be in Tribeca. So I think just being moved by really his his generosity and his welcome, his, his laughter and his spirit. He's not, he doesn't um, um, begrudge what's going on. He makes a beautiful product. And, but for being in Ethiopia, he has difficulty selling it. Mm. How did you take those, taking those experiences that you had with Ducali and, and that inspiration, what changes did you make in the way that you approach running your business? Well, the first thing you realize that coffee is a family business. And so it's not just Ducali, it's his kids, it's his wife, it's the community. It's really family in the largest sense of the word. And um, the, the thing that motivates me most with the cafe is our hospitality, making everybody feel welcome. And that's from the farmers being included in the process to our employees, 
to the customer. And so that inspiration of, and again, that's where All Be Happy comes from, that all-inclusive community feeling. Hmm. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be speaking with David Steingard about his business in Tribeca, what he likes about the neighborhood and things about Tribeca that he just loves being part of. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back, and you're back to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. Our neighborhood today is Tribeca, and our second guest is David Steingart, owner of Laughing Man Coffee on Duane Street. David, how can people find out more about your business? Aside from going and walking in and, and, and buying coffee and tea, what, how can they, they read more about you online? Sure. Uh, LaughingManCafe.com is the best place. It has everything about the foundation, our Instagram, about the cafe. Cool. Let's go to Tribeca. Describe the vibe of your Tribeca. What do you like about it? I have a very unique perspective on Tribeca. So not only was I, I born there, but now my family's there. My two kids are there. One goes to PS 234 that Joyce had mentioned. Um, it's my home. I, it's, it's my home. It's my world. And uh, especially with the cafe, when I go and I sit on the stoop and the whole community comes together, it is the smallest city. In the, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but it's the smallest experience in a big city you could have. It's truly uh, uh, a neighborhood. Is there anything that makes you feel that Tribeca is really different from other neighborhoods in New York? People, people frequently talk about their neighborhoods as like, oh, I live in a small town. You know, yeah, I felt that way yeah, when I lived in yeah. the East Village. I feel that way in, uh, where I live in Harlem. What is it that makes your Tribeca unique for you and your experience of living there and doing business there? Sure. I mean, a couple of things you had mentioned, you know, the physicality of it. Obviously, the, the architecture, the wide streets, if you have any sense of the history of where you're walking. Um, it gets quiet on the weekends. It gets quiet at night. Uh, there's a, a lot of families, a lot of kids. It's um, it's uh, uh, the the energy is really, really, really wonderful to to be there. Very strong community board. People care about it. They fight for things to preserve it. Um, it's just a lot of care and love that goes into it. People who move there, I think, have a connection with it. How have you experienced? Actually, I'm interested in in two stages. How you saw the neighborhood change from as long as you go as you can remember it until you open your business, and yeah. then secondly, from when you open your business till now. So how did the neighborhood change for you from until you opened the business from as far back as you can remember? Sure. I mean, again, it's been pretty drastic, as Joyce mentioned. So I we moved there in, um, let's say, 77, right? So as I mentioned on the break, you know. Just I when Joyce did. I think Joyce moved <laughs> around there. Around there, yeah. Um, it was a rough place. You know, my friends weren't allowed to come down for play dates because it was, you know, wasn't a great neighborhood. I got mugged a couple of times around there. There was nothing there. I used to play Washington Market Park, which is now a beautiful park. At that point, it was just a sand pit with an abstract 
sculpture in the middle that we used to play on. I used to play stickball on the street. I, my best friend across the, the way, we, used, we hung a um, rope between our fire escapes with a bucket that we could pass. I mean, you can't do that anymore. That, that was my Tribeca. It was, it was amazing. You could do anything. I used to play on Harry Wills' trucks who backed up against our building. It was just, it was phenomenal. Um, now it's developed, and there was a period where, um, and and I love Soho, but there was a period where that broad, uh, um, West Broadway changed. You had more commercial stores coming in. Coach, came, it was going through a transformation. I think there was a period where, I think we missed that, and we we had a little more local stores. We had a little more galleries. We preserved a little more of the history. Now. The neighborhood has many wonderful things, a lot of great families, a lot of great infrastructure, a lot of great amenities. But as you know, we're probably having, we're having a retail issue, right? So a lot of the small businesses are going out. Um, and the fabric is changing. So we're, we're in a definitely a transitional time of the, peri- of the neighborhood. Hmm. Well, you talk about uh, living in a village yeah. <laughs> in a city. Uh, do you know if most of your customers live in Tribeca? I would say 85% mm-hmm. live in Tribeca. We have a lot of regulars. And listen, in the morning, they don't even order. We just know their name and we put their drink down. It's that kind of atmosphere. Come back from Labor Day, the first day of school, that's where everybody gathers. It's a great, it's so heartwarming. Um, I don't see that happen. I don't, listen, I know it does happen other places, but I don't see it happen with cafes particularly that people have such a uh, um, interaction with the brand and also the locale that it's in. That happens mostly in uh, a bar that you're regular and yeah, you walk exactly. in. The bartender puts your drink on the counter before you you plop on the bar stool. But that's great that you have that environment yeah. where, where where people you know know that about your customers. Um, is there anything I mean, you've talked about the positive changes in Tribeca that you've seen? Is there anything that you particularly struggle with, either as, as someone who lives there or as a business owner? I think what Tribeca. I think the thing Tribeca struggles with now is the line between preservation and needing to do business. And, you know, it's a mix of just the nature of the economy is moving away from retail. So you just can't have that many small mom and pop stores. Um, You have a lot of big developers coming in and, and I don't know a lot about the details of it, but clearly the rents are very high and, you know, that's market forces. They're, they're going to charge what they can get, but that's sort of dampering the, the retail experience. You also have a big protectionist attitude in Tribeca from, you know, a lot of say... Really, you think of it as so cosmopolitan and it's so, I don't use the word gentrified, but so developed that there really is a protectionist... If you go, to the, you go to the community board meetings, which again, I think have done a good job, but I think there's also a point where um, it becomes a little bit of a, um, a, a club of how can we preserve it. And I think that affects businesses as well whether it be from opening restaurants or bars or the kind of thing, it's sort of not in my backyard. And that's probably in a lot of neighborhoods. So I think that's an identity crisis that Tribeca is facing right now. And, you know, I read the Tribeca Citizen, which is a great blog, local blog, just give a little shout out, which is great. But every day you read an article, so-and-so store went out, this mom and pop store went out. Um, Is it usually because their lease is up and the rents have gone up? Their lease is up, somebody bought the building, they can't, you know, and which again is is the the nature of business, but it's still sad to see because a dog store just went out recently and people came when it ran out and left a note on the door and everybody's signing in and we love Mm. you and... Again, it's 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 sad to see because I think that's the kind of businesses people are looking for, mm. you know, that kind of connection. Well, of course, the flip side of businesses, and we all lament businesses that go out of business, but businesses that we loved or love, they were able to move in because uh, the businesses that were there before, they were, uh, the neighborhood had changed or the environment had changed Absolutely. and it was not feasible for those old businesses. So the businesses that we loved ended up opening up. But, yeah, you know, and, and as, a, as an owner, I'm, I'm, I'm more open and flexible to that. That's the nature of, you know, somebody else comes in and does something. Um, uh, but it's just interesting to see where it'll develop in the next couple of years. You are almost a lifelong resident of Tribeca. <laughs> right. uh, is there anything about the neighborhood that surprises you, David? Anything about the neighborhood that surprises me? Um, I think just really how close-knit it's become. I mean, when I take my you know kids out on the weekend and I'm walking down the block, uh, everybody you know you know everybody. Everybody's really friendly. You can stop a million times and have a spontaneous conversation, or a spontaneous play date, or a spontaneous lunch. That's what I find just amazing because it's New York City. So you really are in this neighborhood that I do feel like, for many reasons, probably good and bad, is a little bit removed 
Um, so it's a good surprise that you have that kind of connection um, in, in New York. Is there anything that you wish the neighborhood had quality-wise or otherwise that it doesn't have that you would like to see it have? Quality-wise, um, no. I, w- I Again, I get back to the retail. I wish it had more... I wish it had more retail shops that were interactive, like a cafe or a great ice cream shop or a local butcher, this kind of thing. I know I'm being a little old school with it, but um, I I like outdoor seating. I like street traffic. I like that vitality. The neighborhood does not like that. Well, I should say, I think you get a lot of pushback from the community board on that. I don't think that's the voice of the neighborhood. I like that kind of walking atmosphere and, and you know vitality. Um, I'd like to see more of that. Mm. Would you have any advice for someone looking to open up a business like that in Tribeca? Yeah, I think you have to keep it very local, very organic, very friendly. When I say organic, I don't necessarily mean the produce, although it's a very, um, uh, the clientele in Tribeca honestly can get anything they want. It's a very high uh, um, uh, you know, economic demographic in Tribeca. So the service has to be good. You have to uh, uh, give them what they want. Um, but you have to be very local. You have to be very, very friendly and not, um, uh, I want to say the word generic, but you have to be willing to adapt to the customer. Um, and then they'll, then they'll treat you very well. Oh, well, sound advice for opening a business in a great neighborhood. Uh, our second guest has been David Steingard, owner of Laughing Man Coffee on Duane Street. Uh, go and visit him when you're in Tribeca. Um, if you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman, NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I'm a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach me at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier, who could not be in the studio tonight due to his ongoing recuperation from a broken arm. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner, coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc. And at 9 p.m., Beyond Potential, Living Life Your Way with my friend Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? 
I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. listening to the Talking Alternative Network, 